0: NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond and I'm joined, as ever and always, remotely by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash.
1: We came really close, Wolfond. You know what we came really close to?
0: I do, but I want you to tell our listeners.
1: We came really close to me naming myself the Clown of the Week. Clippers just had to win last night. If they, if they had reeled off three straight wins following my epic Clippers rant last week in which I called Paul George, the tin man. I I was willing and ready to name myself clown of the week, but alas, the Clippers Clippers and uh, they find themselves down three, two. I mean, we're going to, we're going to talk about both LA teams being on the brink, but I did want to mention that off the top that I, I was very ready and willing To call myself a clown and and accept my uh, failures when it came to the way I had handicapped the Clippers, but uh, although I will say, and I know you had mentioned yesterday in our discussion that had the Clippers won, uh, you would have named this week's episode (laughs) "Ballad of a Tin Man," which I think (laughs) would have been phenomenal. Because Paul, but what I will say is that Paul George uh, game five was not Paul George's fault.
0: He, no, and like point... in a, in all three of these games, I think he's been really, really good. And yep, I, like you you kind of wrote this morning about how the Mavs going with the jumbo lineup sort of changed the dimensions of the series a little bit. The Clippers were absolutely feasting at the rim, which has not been their MO this season. But even in that game where I think you know that Mavs too big look and, and the fact that they went with a lot of zone kind of forced the Clippers back out of the perimeter. PG was still working his way inside and I think, you know, carrying that team for long stretches of time. So I I do think, you know, you don't have to call yourself a clown for this, but, uh, you know, as far as saying that Paul George is a gutless, heartless tin man who was going to fold up, you know, the moment he faced any adversity, especially in that game three, when I think you specifically said. That's correct. You know, if the Clippers get punched in the mouth early in game three, that they are absolutely going to pack it up. And they didn't. Uh, they came back and won. They evened the series. And then Luka Doncic happened in game five. And I, I mean, I, I will never forgive Terrence Mann for <laughs> that regrettable blunder at the end of that game. that prevented me from hearing you crown yourself or clown yourself, should I say. Correct. The clown of the week.
1: You know, what? the sad thing is, is Mann had a great game. You know, he really did. Uh well I shouldn't over I shouldn't say he's sad. I mean it's not sad, but you you know what I mean. It's unfortunate that he wasn't able to cap off a really good playoff performance with a nice moment at the end. But you yeah, know I think um it like tactically it was a really really fascinating game because look obviously you know and I even put this in the post I wrote today that you mentioned about um you know Dallas's tactical decision You know, I wrote that obviously, like at the end of the day, it's still because of Luka. You know, the guy had 42 points and 14 assists and said he could have played better. The guy um, became one of three players in NBA history, joining LeBron James and Allen Iverson to account uh, between his own scoring and his assists for more than 80% of his team's field goals. In total offense, it was more than 71%. Like, you know, any way you look at it, clearly the reason they want, like, first and foremost is because Luka Doncic once again... Um, went healthy in this series is proving that he's the best player in it, and that is unbelievable considering the fact that it, you know Kawhi Leonard and to a lesser extent Paul George is in the series. Kawhi was obviously way off last night, um, but yeah, other like aside from Luca, and it was weird too because I tweeted this last night and then I thought, oh, this probably looks stupid because of how insanely dominant Doncic has been. But I said that I thought you know outside of just some insane shooting earlier in the series, I actually thought this was. Dallas's most complete team performance of the series, and obviously most of that, I mean, on the defensive end. Because yes, Carlisle's decision to start huge. It was the second tallest playoff starting lineup of the last forty years. The first one was actually a Mavs lineup in two thousand three. Um, was it? Was that like Sean Bradley and Dirk or something? It was, yeah. But yeah, like you know, the Clippers for as great a team as they are, for all the contender check boxes they check off. And for as great as Kawhi and PG are, and as for as dominant as Kawhi Leonard is inside, you know, as we've both discussed, they're a very rim averse team. You know, you had sent me the stats um, a couple of days ago. Like they they were 26th in rim frequency this year, according to Cleaning the Glass. They were, uh, I believe, uh, third from the bottom in in drives per game, if I'm not mistaken. And they subsisted their third ranked offense subsisted on Kawhi, PG, and some ridiculous jump shooting. Right, like. They finished top five in both the percentage of their shots that came from mid-range and from the percentage that came from long two. They had the fourth greatest three-point shooting season ever, and they just didn't get to the rim. And so, yeah, in this series, they were getting to the rim at will because Dallas just doesn't have any rim deterrence. And when you combine that with the fact that they also don't have the big wing personnel to deal with Kawhi and PG, they literally had like zero answers for this Clippers attack. And, you know, in game four, there was that brief experiment with Boban, and I don't really think it did much to deter the Clippers at the rim in game four. Or What it really did is like give Dallas kind of a an offensive outlet to just dump it down to against the, the smaller Clippers and Boban scored some points. But in game five, starting with Boban and Porzingis on the court and staying with a two big lineup for the majority of the night, it was like a two big lineup plus a zone. So it was like the paint was packed and they played a zone in front of that. It just had the Clippers out of sorts. And like the thing I was saying yesterday is Porzingis and Bobon aren't even good rim protectors if you look at their numbers. Like you can score on them inside, but the Clippers are such a rim-averse team that it's almost like if you, just, if you give them a reason not to attack, they won't. And when you pack the paint with absolute giants, they're not sitting there thinking, okay, well, these guys aren't actually statistically good rim protectors. They're just seeing gargantuans packing the paint and they're already a rim reverse team that only needs a little bit of inspiration to not attack and that was all it took and um i thought to, like as the game wore on they did start to attack the rim more but early on especially like they looked out of sorts Kawhi, especially you know i thought the zone defense really impacted his playmaking which still isn't really like a natural part of his game it's improved but it's not a natural part of his game and I think he had like five turnovers to five assists he had 20 points on 26 possessions like one of the least efficient game maybe the least efficient playoff game I've ever seen Kawhi play and so look I don't know if it can work a second game in a row because at the end of the day they're forcing the Clippers to be a shooting team but they're actually a great shooting team so you know if they had just bombed the shit out of the ball from deep we're not going to be sitting here today talking about this stroke of genius from Carlisle. We're going to be like, wow, he he forced a great shooting team to shoot and they shot the lights out. Uh, so I don't know if it works the second game in a row, but I do know that it definitely worked in game five. You know, the, the Mavs just need to split two games now and they pull off the upset. And I'm really fascinated to see how, if at all, Ty Lue and the Clippers can, can counter this. Because I'm not really sure how they can because it's like, okay, You know, can they experiment with even smaller lineups? Do they, like, dust off Luke Kennard and try to punish the Mavs for daring them to shoot? Like, at the end of the day, like, that's what the Mavs want, you know? If the Clippers get hot and have a great shooting night, it's like, okay, you know, that's the risks associated with this Mavs gamble, but shooting more isn't really going to, I don't think, force the Mavs out of this. Like, the whole point of them doing this is to deter the rim runs and force the Clippers to shoot.
0: Yeah, I mean, look... the. Clearly, the the jumbo look had an effect. They got to the rim less frequently than they did earlier in the series. And more importantly than that, like they were way less efficient when they did get to the rim. They shot 54% at the rim in game five. In the four games before that, they shot 73% at the rim. So it impacted them in that regard, but also like they just missed jump shots. And it's such 14 a 14 of
1: 38 outside the paint.
0: That's what I'm saying. And like, you know, I, I didn't see anything where from a process perspective, it's like they weren't getting good shots. Like there was definitely a lot of stagnancy in their offense. Like that's just kind of the Clippers MO. Like I don't think we should expect anything different at this point. Like there is going to be a, a fair amount of ISO ball and it's not always going to look fluid or pretty, but it is, or it can be brutally efficient. It's just like, they didn't knock down shots in this game. And like sometimes that's what it comes down to and and we can look at that decision to start huge and say what a stroke of genius by Rick Carlisle and I do think it's funny like Paul George comes out and, and says oh yeah we're just attacking the rim because they have no rim protection and Rick Carlisle's like hold my beer and yeah. you know for game 5 basically has two bigs on the floor at all times we get big Bobon minutes. We get big Dwight Powell minutes. We get Willie Cauley-Stein minutes. Like, they were playing their absolute biggest players as often as they possibly could. And Powell the Clippers, was great, by
1: the way. His energy off the bench, especially on the glass, was awesome. For
0: sure. And, and that wasn't something that I really saw coming because it has not been a good season for Dwight Powell, but he came up big. And interestingly enough, like, the Clippers, there wasn't a counter-adjustment from them. Like, they started small with... Marcus Morris, Nick Batum, whoever you want to call the center in their like all-wings lineup, they they decided to stick with that. And I, I, I'm pretty sure the Mavs won the minutes when they were big and the Clippers were small, but it's like, okay, do you necessarily chalk that up to the Mavs being big or do you chalk it up to the fact that Luka was completely unconscious in the first three quarters of that game and the Clippers weren't really knocking down shots the way that they usually do? Man, like I got such whiplash from this series. I, I have no idea what to expect or what's going to happen in Game Six because it's just been such a roller coaster. Obviously, the road team has won every single game, and I still think, look, the, like again, Doncic, best player in the series without a doubt. As good as Kawhi has been, like that, and that's really, you know, that that's what's amazing about it is like Luca has still been the best player in the series, and Kawhi has been. You know, until last night's game, Kawhi has been like peak, peak Kawhi for most of the series, and Luca has still outplayed him. It's it's insane. And I've been like trying to contextualize what he's doing. And in like recent history, I feel like the only comparable where it's like, you know, he doesn't have a ton of help. I don't think the supporting cast is as bad as some people are making it out to be, but he does not have a ton of help. And he is taking. A legitimate contender, a juggernaut of a team, to the absolute brink, and I think the closest comparable, you know, really that I've seen in my basketball watching life is LeBron against the Pistons in two thousand seven, and like that. that, How nuts
1: is that? That that that's that's where we're going for comps
0: here, man. But that's the company he's keeping with what he's doing at his age, you know. Yeah, and you know, I, I think. The the supporting cast on Matt Cavs team was worse than the supporting mm-hmm. cast that Luca has, without a doubt. But I also think this Clippers team is better than that Pistons team was, and the way that Luca is, you know, almost single handedly unwinding them is gobsmacking to me. And look again, Clippers to me are the better team. Luca's the best player. It's going back to Dallas for Game Six. I, I don't know what to do with that. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm you know, done trying to make predictions for this series or, or figure out how it's going to go. But uh, I I think I'm just going to, you know, sit back and try and enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I, I will say like, and I agree with you that like a, a lot of this clearly does come down to shot making variance when you look at the way the series has swung wildly. And it's shot making variance in Luka. But I will say like, even, you know, not to go full um, throttle on the rant I went on last week, but like, I think we can both agree that maybe early in the series, like the Clippers didn't exactly have a sense of urgency that we would have liked them to come out with. And it, again, it's not... Even if you don't want to go into like the hard stuff, like they, they didn't come out with the sense of urgency, I think, especially down one nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the first game, it happens. But I think the way they came out in game two and the kind of like... Yeah, just the, the, the lack of urgency that they appeared to play with, given, you know, what happened in the playoffs last year, given the opportunity that they have this year to compete for a championship, I think now is when it's like, you really start to think about it. It's like, man, like, okay, maybe maybe they lose game two anyway. We don't know, like, the way the, the Mavs are shooting the ball. But it's like, maybe you don't have yourself in, in this position now had you just maybe started the series with a little more focus. Had you maybe had just been a little more consistent in games one and two. And I know that, Again, at the end of the day, it's like if you're looking for perfection, maybe that's unfair. But as I've said so many times over the years, we've done this podcast and especially in the playoffs, like man, the, the margin for error is so damn small in the playoffs that like if you're a contender, you know, it might not be fair that people like us sit here and almost like expect perfection. But it's like that that is kind of the expectation when you are a contender um, with the postseason history this team has and and some of these players have. And, and yeah, like the, the margins that thin, it's like, you know, you can't really afford to have a game two where people are questioning your focus or attention to detail or sense of
0: urgency down one, nothing. You know what I mean? I do. And I never meant to suggest that it was all down to shot making. I think that was a big part of it and maybe a bigger part of it than a lot of people wanted to acknowledge, you know, in their haste to clown the Clippers, but (laughs) it was definitely a focus issue and an execution issue and like a tactical issue. And like, they were just making dumb mistakes and they were all at a source chasing their tails. And Luca was doing that to them, but they were also doing it to themselves in a lot of ways. And they've cleaned a lot of that up, but now it's like you say, their margin for error has evaporated. So it might prove to be too late because you can clean all that stuff up and you're still just like one hot shooting Dallas game away from going home. And I, I'm does it, it seem to you like they've unlocked something with this small ball lineup? Like I, I maybe have to eat the L on that one because I came out and said I thought it was a really bad idea. But frankly, with Ibaka still out and Zubac just playing like garbage, I'm sorry to so say, like I'm a big fan yeah, of Zubac so in his game, but like he's been very bad. The the that Clipper's small ball lineup has kind of come through for them, and I do think injecting Terrence Mann into the mix. You know, his his late game grenade to Nick Batum notwithstanding has been a really important part of that because I think he's done as good a job as anybody, you know, as a switch defender, switching on to Luca, like he's getting into passing lanes and mucking stuff up. And I think um I, I think having like another switchable wing in that mix has gone a long way toward making it more viable. And it's been especially useful because Kristaps Porzingis has done absolutely nothing. Like
1: he's he, masqueraded as Andrea Bargnani for this series.
0: Man, how many times in the last couple of games has he had like Rajon Rondo on him, like 15 feet from the basket, and it's just a turnaround. And it's like it goes in sometimes, but it, it clanks off the rim more often than not. And there's never really any attempt to get himself better post positioning. Even if it's just like a repost, right? where you're working for like a few more feet of space to give yourself an easier shot. It's just always going to that turnaround jumper, which is like, if you're Dirk and you can knock that down 55% of the time, well, that's one thing, but obviously Porzingis ain't that. And it's just like, they're not getting a whole lot at all from the size mismatch that he has at the offensive end.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's, I guess, get to the Lakers because I do know you have some interesting stuff to talk about there and you wrote a piece about um, AD. But the one thing I, before we get there, the one thing I did want to ask you because I did mention it at the end of my post is like, not that it will solve anything, but desperate times sometimes call for desperate measures and and coaches, you know, make decisions that uh, maybe they didn't think they were going to make earlier in the series. Over, under 0.5 minutes for Luke Kennard in game six. Under. they're they're not gonna they're not gonna this entire series
0: well like are you gonna throw him in cold for an elimination game are you kidding me that's just like setting him up for failure if they do that yeah i I, Uh, no i i think they've kind of made their decision and and the guys that they've ridden with so far are the guys that they're gonna ride with like whose minutes would he be taking even they've already excised beverly from the rotation so yeah like who else is there I, I honestly like maybe it would be Reggie Jackson, but Reggie Jackson's been pretty good. Like, I, right. they wouldn't have even been in that game last night if not for his three point shooting. So, yeah, I would say, I would say, under he's going to get zero minutes unless it's a blowout. Um, but, yeah, Lakers also on the brink of elimination. And it's just such a bummer the way that injuries have dictated so much of how this postseason has played out. That's obviously impacting the Lakers right now. Anthony Davis missed the second half of Game 4 with the groin injury. He missed all of Game 5, in which the Lakers got absolutely steamrolled. And as we record this, his status for Game 6 is still up in the air. Lakers are up against it, and <laughs> it, it's never wise to bet against LeBron. They're going back home a, a bit of positive shooting regression could go a long way. It's not inconceivable to me that they will find a way to extend the series. I'm having a really hard time seeing how they manage to win it. Um, because even if AD does come back, I mean, a groin injury with that kind of turnaround, like, I don't think he's going to be anywhere close to 100%, even if he plays. And, you know, if you watched game five and what LeBron's supporting cast looked like in that game, and how LeBron looked in that game, I mean, what it what it would take from him to actually turn this thing around and get the Lakers past a very, very good Suns team would be Herculean. And again, we've come to expect Herculean feats from LeBron James, but I don't know if he can pull this one out.
1: Yeah, you know, you talk about like the, the AD groin injury, and obviously there's no
0: way of knowing you know how these things are
1: connected but it is interesting to look back on the teams that went deep in the bubble and and see how they whether coincidence or the shortest off season ever yeah and the jam-packed schedule those teams were pretty decimated this year and I, I, again i know it's hard to make the connection because some of it was also just like covid related which obviously isn't you know related to the fact they played in the bubble but yeah like those teams really didn't stay very healthy this season and uh Definitely looked out of gas at certain points of the year. And the Lakers kind of look like that right now. Like even LeBron, man. Like, look, it's LeBron. We both have faith. Like it, I, I wouldn't be shocked if he has a classic LeBron game six performance tonight. And, um, you know, this thing goes back to Phoenix for game seven and, and they have LeBron on their side. But he just doesn't look like he's got his full burst. Um, you know, and, and I don't even think, I, I don't even want to make this like an, oh, he's finally slowing down thing. Age like father Time's catching up to him. I think he's just not health. Like he's not a hundred percent healthy. He had a high ankle sprain. Um, well, that, that he, but
0: that is what father time catching up to you looks like. You know, right? it's not just like, yes, there is an element of just overall physical decline, but it's also like more of these nicks and bruises and soft tissue injuries and things that are like harder and harder to recover from. You know and and those small injuries that maybe he was able to play through in the past are hampering him more than they otherwise would have. Um, and, and like I hundred percent agree. I it's always hard to know with LeBron because he does always play the long game. And so you're watching that game five and it's like, wow, LeBron looks really disengaged. He d- doesn't seem to have any juice at all. Uh, maybe he's cooked. maybe the Lakers are cooked in this series. Or maybe LeBron recognized very quickly that the Lakers had no chance of winning that game five and he kind of mailed it in for the purpose of preserving himself for a game six and possibly a game seven. It's just like, we won't know until we watch game six, but that's always a possibility with LeBron. Like he, he knows how to manage his body uh, as well as anybody. So I, I'm not sure, but there, there was, I mean, a couple of things jumped out at me. One, he, he was two of five at the rim in that game, was not attacking particularly aggressively at all, could not seem to find his way around DeAndre Ayton when he was driving the ball, whether it was in the pick and roll or out of isolation. There was one play that I, that I highlighted in that post where he got the switch on Ayton, dragged him out to the three-point line. And usually it's like, I mean, you know that that look, that LeBron has when he's dragging a big guy out to the perimeter and he's kind of licking his fingers and like he's revving up to just barrel into them or barrel right past them. And that drive was so meek by his standards. He took such a wide route to try and get around Aiton rather than, you know, fully healthy, full burst LeBron is just going straight into the chest every single time but he was shying away from contact and he didn't have the same kind of elevation at the rim, clearly. So the result is that he winds up with zero free throw attempts in that game. First time that's happened to him in a playoff game since 2013. And that's got to be worrisome. Even if you think that that he is just kind of leaving something in reserve because he knows what it's going to take for him to win this game six and then possibly a game seven after. Even if you believe that, I just it's kind of hard to to bet on the Lakers given the state that AD is going to be in if he can even play at all. And the state of that supporting cast, which was frankly terrible in game five. Like, yeah. you know, th- that LeBron performance as kind of dispiriting as it was would not have stood out, I don't think to the same extent, if he was getting one iota of help from anybody else on that roster.
1: Yeah, the, and the irony is that like this supporting cast is supposed to be and is like by and large better than last year's championship winning supporting cast, right? Like when when the they made the moves they made this offseason, you know, I know a lot of people myself for sure thought like yeah, this is what I expected. If you remember right after they won last year, I had said at the time, I think this first year of the LeBron AD partnership that resulted in a championship will ultimately go down as the worst of any of the LeBron AD teams coming up because I think now they're going to have a chance to like retool around these guys and I do think on paper the supporting cast is better this year but the one thing that has still not really been addressed is the shoot like this team needs shooting man and this is coming from someone that is as big a believer in the LeBron AD duo as anyone like you've heard me say for two years now if those two guys are healthy and playing 100% they're winning the championship but you need shooting too and they bucked the trend last year. Like, they were the first team in a decade uh, since the 2010 Lakers to win a championship without a top 10 three point shooting percentage. Um, I know stats don't always tell the whole story, but th- that was a big part of the story. Like, them winning the championship without shooting was mostly because they had a once in a generation duo. And in the playoffs, they actually did shoot the ball better, too. But, like, at some point, you can't keep doing it without shooting. And it's not like they're just an average shooting team. Like, this is the second year in a row. They've been a bottom eight shooting team, both in terms of three-point frequency and three-point percentage. You know, like, this kind of is a perfect example. LeBron maybe isn't 100%, and there's just, like, no outlets. There are no outlets. And, uh, like, I, yeah, i I think they will force a Game 7 because very stubbornly i can't see lebron not winning tonight but i i have a hard time seeing them winning this series even if ad comes back because as you mentioned a groin injury like how how good can we expect him to be lebron is clearly not 100 percent. and i don't trust this supporting cast right now to kind of pick these guys up
0: yeah i mean the, to the point about shooting and it does have something to do with LeBron's whether you know whether you want to call it lack of aggressiveness or just a lack of willingness to attack the rim like their spacing is terrible and there were tons of possessions in that game 5 in which all five Suns defenders had at least one foot in the paint and there was nothing that the Lakers could do to punish them for it because of not only their inability to hit open threes but their unwillingness often to even take them like they were passing up good looks over and over again, and just bleeding the shot clock, and they didn't, like outside of LeBron, who, again, wasn't even really his attack mind himself. No one's getting any dribble penetration. Dennis Schroeder had, I don't even know how to describe the game Dennis Schroeder had, except to say that it was very, very bad. Um, And, you know, I think a big issue for the Lakers is like when the Suns are packing the paint. There are, often ball reversals or skip passes that are available to Schroeder that he either doesn't see or just chooses not to make. And those windows close and the Lakers get nothing out of it. They don't get the ball moving. They don't get the Suns in rotation and they don't punish them for helping extremely aggressively. And that's, you know, a big reason the Lakers find themselves in the bind that they're in. And another reason is look, they, they, Survive. they more than survived they they thrived defensively despite missing ad for a huge chunk of the regular season but against a really good phoenix suns offense i feel like we're sort of starting to see the limitations of that and with ad not there to kind of give them spot minutes at the five that's forcing more andre drummond minutes it's forcing more marcus all minutes And it's also changing the way that the Lakers play the pick and roll on defense, because a lot of the time they like to play the show and recover game. And they can do that because whether it's AD at the level of the screen or whether it's Drummond or Gasol, they can usually trust that there is going to be another rim protector behind them if the Suns manage to turn the corner or if they kick the ball out and, and trigger rotations. But this time, like without AD there, they're mostly playing drop. And that just did not go well at all. I mean, Gasol was absolute food in the pick and roll. I love Mark Gasol. I don't know that he can play anymore in this series. Like he's just getting obliterated. There've been like a bunch of possessions where Drummond, when he's guarding the screener, like he'll be guarding Aiden in pick and roll and he'll ostensibly be in a drop, but he turns his back on the ball have you noticed this like he turns his back Uh, on the ball to to go and like get back in contact with Aiton on the roll and he did that a couple times when it was like campaign driving either out of pick and roll or dribble handoff and it's like okay if the on-ball defender is going over the screen and the drop defender is turning his back on the ball it's just a free runway to the basket and campaign has absolutely torn them apart like I I you know, obviously offensively is where they're really, really struggling right now. But but the defense hasn't looked great either. And, But we've talked a lot about the Lakers. The Suns deserve a ton of credit for how well they've played. Devin Booker was absolutely masterful in that Game 5. Chris Paul, again, he seemed to re-injure his shoulder in that game. So we don't know <laughs> what his status is going to be for Game I 6. Don't, I
1: don't mean to laugh at the injury because we're all bummed out about the injury. But like, just, it, it's almost like, like a maniacal laugh in a way because i'm i'm just like out of sorts with the injuries and yeah like we're talking about chris paul seemingly being done for the series for the second time in this series in only five games and then returning to the court again yeah. like it's just-
0: but but also like before he seemingly re injured that shoulder he was playing very well in that yeah, yeah. game the last
1: couple of games he's looked more like chris paul
0: yeah like still obviously not as aggressive as a scorer but in terms of all the kind of game managing stuff that he does, he's been Chris Paul. So and
1: and the mid range jumper as a whole, like it, yes, it, he hasn't gone to it as much as he usually would. But if you like compare what it looked like in games four and five to what it looked like the first few games after the injury, it definitely looks like a lot more of a natural Chris Paul looking shot. Whereas in those first three games, like there was like a hitch and like you could tell he was fighting himself to get that shot off.
0: Okay. Uh you think the Lakers are extending this series? But uh do you think that they're going to win it? I don't. Yeah, me neither. And and I honestly think they're going home tonight. That's that's my prediction. But maybe I'm just falling victim to recency bias because they looked absolutely helpless in that game 5. I just I think the Suns given the Lakers' health situation are a much better team right now. And I think it really is going to take something heroic for LeBron to even extend this series. Certainly not out of the realm of possibility, but not my expectation. Let's uh, let's move on to another Western conference series. My favorite Western conference series, The, the series that is to my mind, the best show in basketball right now, even though that show is being played mostly on NBA TV for some reason, Blazers Nuggets, Damian Lillard, Nikola Jokic, offensive fireworks every single game, and the greatest display of those fireworks came in Game 5, in which Denver escaped by the skin of their teeth with a double overtime win after nearly squandering a 22-point first-half lead and botching multiple end-of-game scenarios, survived a Damian Lillard- Supernova, uh, because they have Nikola Jokic and because Yusuf Nurkic, who is the only player on the Blazers who has any hope of stopping Nikola Jokic, can't stop fouling out of games. What, what do you I mean, I know you wrote about this game, Cash, but I got to hear your thoughts on that game five, because that to me was an absolute all timer among many that the Blazers and Nuggets have played in the last three years like this matchup always delivers and obviously that game was no exception
1: yeah it's great man kd was on the money when he tweeted the other night that this this is a spiritual experience i love this series we said last week if you remember that when the series was 1-1 and despite my uh clippers ramblings we both agreed last week that the the next game we were most looking forward to at the time was game three of this series and i think even with the Lakers and Clippers on the ropes, I think I would say, again, this game I'm most looking forward to from a basketball perspective is the next Blazers-Nuggets game. Like, th- this series is phenomenal, and yeah, there's not a lot of defense to be found, but how can you not be entertained by what Damian Lillard and Nikola Jokic are doing right now? Like, what Dame did at the end of Game 5 was unbefriggin' even for Dame. even, f- like... It's unbelievable that this guy continues to add to his reputation as a big shot maker. Like he came into the season already having one of the greatest clutch resumes in NBA history, which included two series winning walk-off buzzer beaters. Then he had one of the greatest clutch shooting seasons ever this year. And then in the playoffs, he's doing it again. He has a game in which he hits two, not buzzer beaters, but two game tying shots at the end of regulation overtime in uh, the first overtime. He had a stretch where he outscored the Nuggets single-handedly 12-3 over two minutes, okay? Mike Malone, what the hell are you doing not fouling up three, like three different... I wrote about this too, like Mike Malone is very lucky that Dame's teammates let him down the way they did because had Dame hit another game-tying shot at the end of regulation or if CJ McCollum had not stepped out of bounds and he hit the game-tying shot, What people would have been talking about the next day isn't, you know, from a negative perspective, wasn't Dame's teammates shutting him down. It would have been, what the hell is Mike Malone doing? How do you let, okay, end of regulation, you don't foul up three. Bad decision in my opinion, but it happens. End of overtime, you don't foul up three with the, you leave the ball and the game in Dame's hands again. Inexcusable. End of second overtime, you're prepared to do it again? Like, they were letting it happen again. I. I'm sorry, but even if your philosophy is we don't foul up three, like, come on, man. Like, how, how many times do you need to be burned by this and like, leave the game in the hands of Damian friggin' Lillard to, like, learn your mistakes? But anyway, they got away with it, you know, such as life in the playoffs. Or right? if you get away with things, not a lot of people talk about your failures. Um, yeah, this series is great. Dame's incredible. Jokic, like, my God. He's completely unguardable and unstoppable. There used to be a time where you could you know, if you played him in single coverage, he wasn't the most forceful or willing scorer despite his ability to be one, right? Like he's too selfless of a player, whatever the critiques were. You can't do that with him anymore. You play him in single coverage, he'll bully, you know, smaller defenders in the post. You'll spray threes for above the break if you give him space out there. You know, he'll use those like very awkward looking, methodical moves that work, you know, even in the mid range and in like the the high post, to kind of tap dance around bigger guys and then you bring that double or you take your eyes off your man for even a second and he's gonna absolutely fillet your defense with an incredible like that skip pass he hit michael porter jr with that was a legitimate ankle breaking skip pass when the hell do you see that like well robert robert covington it was so far out of robert covington and it shocked robert covington so much and was so far out of his reach that after jumping he literally fell i know it wasn't an ankle breaker in the traditional sense but like the fact that Jokic put it where he put it led to poor robert covington on his ass yeah while michael porter hit that three like it, well, it, covington's it got a it,
0: covington's right. got to know better than to try and intercept that pass though like he 100%. should have just been sprinting out to the corner to try and contest 100%. that shot like come on man you think Jokic is going to throw that pass where you can intercept it smarter than that Robert Covington I cackled out loud
1: watching that pass and gasped it was unbelievable
0: and it's like I, I remember a few weeks back you know we were talking about that pass that he, he made in that regular season game against the Clippers you know the one I'm talking about like that blind bullet yeah. overhead skip pass to uh, I think it was Campazo in the corner and it, it was like very similar situation like obviously the, the floor balance was a little bit different but it's like In that situation against the Clippers, it's like Rajon Rondo had come to try and blindside him with double team. He instantly knew two guys on the weak side, Kawhi Leonard playing between them. Aaron Gordon instantly knows to cut, engages Kawhi, leaving Campoza open in the corner. Jokic doesn't even have to look to know exactly what's going to happen and throws that pass uh, to where he knows the open man is going to be. And it was really similar in this case, right? Because uh, it was Norm Powell bringing that double team this time from the baseline. This time Jokic could see it and he could see where he was going to throw the pass to. But like, same thing, right? It's Covington is playing between Gordon on the wing, MPJ in the corner, Gordon cuts, engages Covington for a split second. And that was all Jokic needed. He just needed that tiny pocket, of time and space to thread that pass to Porter Jr. And I'm like, again, you know, Nurkic wasn't on the floor for that possession because he'd fouled out of the game. So the Blazers didn't really have any choice but to start double teaming Jokic. So I'm not entirely sure what the answer is. I think you just have to kind of hope, like Porter Jr. obviously isn't the guy that you want to wind up getting like open corner threes. But apart from him, I think you can maybe live with with, like, the rest of the guys on the Nuggets getting those catch-and-shoot threes and just trusting your ability to at least, like, close out and maybe try and run them off the arc. Like, I think that's still preferable to letting Jokic go one-on-one against, like, Covington or Cantor or Carmelo or whoever else they want to throw at him.
1: Yeah, I mean, there there are no easy answers when it comes to Jokic, but I definitely think that's preferable. Uh, that's, that's the thing you can live with. But, man, Nurkic has to stay, like... At the end of the day, Nurkic has to stay on the floor. And I know, look, part of it is absolute sieves in front of him. <laughs> yes. Like, the, the the if you're a Blazers big, you're going to be under constant pressure because no one wearing a Blazers jersey on the perimeter can provide any resistance on it. No matter, you know, Dame's obviously a lost cause there. CJ, I think, has always been a bit of an overrated defender. Norman Powell leads the league in the amount of time. So Whoa, he, like, CJ is an
0: overrated defender? There was, a
1: time when people, there was a time when people thought C.J. McCollum was like somewhat of a two-way player, and I never understood it. I think now people, are like, like no one gives him any credit defensively now, but there was a time when people, maybe it was because in contrast to Dame, he was seemingly an okay defender, but I don't even think he's much better, if at all, than Dame. Norm Powell, as I was saying, leads the league in like slapping the floor and getting into a defensive crouch and then getting blown by it's atrocious on the perimeter and so that doesn't help Nurkic but he's going to take some responsibility for this too there have been some really like undisciplined offensive fouls there's been some undisciplined fouls that have nothing to do with being under pressure after you know a blow by on the perimeter so he needs to be better you had tweeted it after game four or five um the numbers with him on and off and then I put it in my story as well like it's I believe uh the on-off net rating for Nurkic in this series is like plus 41 per 100%. possession. they are like minus 20 per 100 with him off the court and plus 20-ish with him on the court. And yeah. a big part of that is because he is the only one with a hope in hell of stopping Jokic, okay, or at least slowing him down. He is somewhat of a connector on the offensive end, but it's more so about his defensive value. And you take him off the court, Jokic gets friggin' Enes Kanter or sometimes like Carmelo Anthony or Covington, and we know what's going to happen there. And you combine that with their inability to stop guys elsewhere, and it's like they're out of answers. Nurkic has to stay on the floor.
0: That's it. And I'm I'm starting to think, first of all, I think the Nuggets have like a 140 or 142 offensive rating when Jokic is on the floor and Nurkic is off. So obviously nothing's working there. I think the answer has to be like if they wind up in a similar situation, again, they're going to be picking from a series of terrible options, but I don't think Cantor is giving them enough to justify playing him. I think they're probably better off just going smaller, you know, with like Covington slash mellow at the five double teaming Jokic, trusting that with a, a smaller group of maybe speedier defenders that they can rotate well enough. And then they're probably making Jokic's life a little bit more difficult at the other end of the floor. Cause like, what are they actually like, what are they getting from Cantor? You know, I understand, like, they don't they don't want Covington to pick up the fouls. They don't want, like, the physical attrition that it's going to cost those guys to be the primary on Jokic. But, like, Cantor cannot play, I don't think, in this series moving forward. I feel like that has to be the adjustment from the Blazers. I do want to just quickly go back to what you were talking about with the, with the Nuggets at the end of the game. And obviously, in hindsight, you know, not even in hindsight, at the time, I think we both can agree, like, the right move would have been fouling up three. Sometimes easier said than done. You don't want to pick up the three-shot foul and Dame is crafty like that. And there's you know, definitely a chance that he could find a way to finagle three free throws. But from a big picture perspective, this just reinforced to me that like there needs to be a rule change to dissuade that from being the obvious go-to strategy in a scenario like that. Because Dame Lillard made two insane three-pointers to tie the game at the end of regulation and at the end of the first overtime. I mean, the second one was simply psychotic. Like Mm -hmm. that step back three over Shaq Harrison. Like the footwork. After
1: after turning around?
0: Oh my God. The the footwork required to like, I didn't think he was going to be able to get back behind the arc from where he was. Like that was incredible. And then the balance to actually hit that shot. That's what people should be talking about. Like, we shouldn't be sitting here talking about how the Nuggets fucked this up by not fouling up three. And the fact that we're at a point where, like, that is clearly the right strategic decision is really unfortunate. And so I think, I don't know what that rule change would actually look like, but, and maybe it's just, like, if you're up three with a certain, you know, under a minute to go or, like, on a final possession, like, it's just automatically three free throws if you intentionally foul. Like something to that effect to, to make that not a winning strategy. You know, it's just stupid that that was even part of the conversation.
1: I mean, I hear you. But then it's like also at that point, it's like you're almost taking away. You're taking away strategy from the winning. Like you say, oh, if you're up three, you can't foul like in this situation. Like at that point, then maybe the argument is just like, no intentional fouls at all in the final minute or something, regardless of whether you're winning or losing. And then you're taking away, then you're taking away strategy from like the, both the winning team and the losing team. Well, no, I, no, that's,
0: if, if you, if you intentionally foul like away from the ball in the final two minutes, it's like a free throw and the ball, like they've implemented rules to dissuade right. gamesmanship like that. So I don't think there'd be anything wrong with implementing further rules to restrict like bullshit, end-of-game tactics like that to make the game more enjoyable to watch to make end-of-game scenarios more exciting i I know this wasn't everybody and a lot of people were just like going crazy about what dame was doing but even me like it almost took i wouldn't say it took away some of my enjoyment of it but like the fact that half of me was like wow this is incredible from dame and half of me was like what the hell are the nuggets doing to me that's a problem because Is it,
1: or does that almost make it more enjoyable too? That we we have something to. I,
0: I don't think so. I don't think so because I don't want that. I, I don't want that. What the hell are the Nuggets doing to enter into the equation? At least not from a, at least not from a place where the thing that I think they should have been doing is something that would have made the the end of that game way less fun and way less exciting. Right. You know, like why is my brain telling me that what I actually wanted to see happen was. For the Nuggets to put the Blazers at the free throw line, rather than for Dame to have a chance to tie the game with a transcendent pull-up three-ball.
1: Yeah, again, I, I get you, and I, I I hear you, and yes, it would make for you know more guaranteed entertainment. Um, I just wonder because yeah, like they made the rule now of fouling away from the ball, but I do want like there would have to be, I think, like the rule would just have to be like, I don't know, one possession game, no intentional fouling at all. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if they can just do it for say the the defensive team who's winning that's all i'm saying um but yeah i mean you never know like uh, i think the nba is open to change with that kind of stuff and it, it wouldn't shock me if it is eventually a rule
0: yeah. yeah um anyway i just i think what makes this series so incredible is it's these two just absolute offensive virtuosos who are operating at the peak of their powers right now and they're warping defenses in completely different ways, right? Like they they could not be more stylistically distinct. And I just think that's a great showcase for the diversity of talent and like the aesthetic diversity of the superstars in the league today. And so in spite of the fact that it's often being put on NBA TV, I hope people are paying attention and watching this series because it's just been... Absolutely awesome.
1: This one's going seven, I think.
0: I think so too. And I, I, just like they did two years ago, I I don't think it's going to be... Not that home court advantage won't be a factor, but like I would not be at all surprised to see Portland pull out game seven on the road.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could happen. I think it'll be a great game either way.
0: Um, Can I just ask you one quick question before we move on from this? Absolutely. So I feel like this... Dame needs more help narrative really gained a lot of traction after, yeah, you know, predictably, I guess, after you lose a game in, in which your superstar drops 55 points, that's going to be the dialogue, especially after, I think, what did they go? Like one of 14, his supporting cast in, in the two overtime periods or something like that? Uh Yeah, I believe one of 14. You know, and then CJ has that blunder where he steps on the sideline, like... Covington
1: misses a dunk.
0: Covington misses a dunk. But... Here's my feeling about that, and I'll ask you what you think. Are we not letting Dame off the hook for the role that he's played in the Blazers' terrible defense? Like, I know it's it's pretty psychotic to nitpick after the game he just had, but, like, a big reason they found themselves in, in such a big hole to begin with was that his defense in the first half was absolutely atrocious.
1: Yes. Like, the short answer is yes, we're letting him off the Like, we are, Absolutely. Because, you know, his defensive deficiencies are like they hamper you when you're trying to build a championship level team around such a star. However, I do think he is the rare type of star that is so good on one end. He can be basically a zero on the other end and still be the kind of player that could be the best player on a championship team. And I think, you know, from Portland's perspective, it's like you got to recognize that. And you need to adjust around them. And like, I don't want to get into the whole, like the series isn't even over yet. They still have a chance to win it. I don't want to get into the whole, like like, he should want out or like they should trade everyone. But I think it's past time here that the Blazers figure something out and put a more stable defensive team around them and put a team around them that would maximize his ability to win and their ability to win. And I just think that like, you know, the partnership's been great, but I think there's an obvious move to make here and it's probably that CJ is going to go because Dame is good enough on his own offensively. And you know, I'm not saying they need to go all in on defense outside of Dame, but the, the roster needs to clearly be more balanced. And I just, yeah, I mean, I, I, and listen, I also get the, I really do understand why it can be so frustrating, you know, for like after a game like that, all anyone's talking about on certain shows and networks is Dame needs to ask out or like that, but Look, man, like championship windows are really short. Mm -hmm. Guys, primes are really short. I'm not advocating for pushing a guy out because by all accounts, he loves Portland and is super loyal to them. But like, I do think it's fair after a game like that at this stage in Dame's career to ask these questions, you know, like, does Dame need a better supporting cast? You know, whether that's him forcing out or them making trades. Like, I do think those are fair questions. Like, at the end of the day, this is still professional sports. And, you know, as I've always said, as long as you're not, like, attacking guys personally um, and you're keeping it basketball, like, I think I think it's fair to have that conversation when a guy has the performance he had and is, sorry, but quite frankly, let down by his teammates the way he was. Like, I put this in the piece, but it's like, it, it's unfortunate they couldn't pick him up at the end of second OT when he was clearly gassed after they had spent the entire game on his shoulders.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is fair, but I, I just, okay, like if if your superstar player dictates that you need to have this like airtight defensive infrastructure around him, that's maybe a little bit of a problem with their superstar it as is. well. And I, I love Dame. I, I love watching him play. He's clearly been an amazing leader and tone setter and culture setter in Portland over the last you know nine years however long he's been there but uh i, I he's got aware of some of that man like the blazers are Absolutely. consistently terrible on defense and he mm-hmm. is consistently one of their worst perpetrators if not their worst maybe not this year because mellow and Cantor are there but like he's been a big part of the problem so that's all i have to say about that let's take a break and we will come back and we'll talk a little bit about the east second round because the east first round is over <laughs> while these western conference series are rolling along in entertaining fashion we've got a pair of second round series to talk about
1: what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts you can also check out the scores fantasy football podcast with justin boone and in case you haven't already download the score app available on iphone and android that's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the score's YouTube page for an informative yet light-hearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, Cash, we're moving over to the Eastern Conference, and before we talk about the two Eastern Conference semifinals that are gonna kick off this weekend, I wanted to give you a chance to weigh in on the Boston Celtics front office shakeup with Danny Ainge stepping away from his post, Brad Stevens moving off of the bench and into the front office, taking over for Ainge as president of basketball operations. What do you think about what's going on in Boston?
1: It's an absolute clown show.
0: (laughs) A clown show?
1: It's a clown show. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, between the Clippers not going up 3-2 and the Celtics doing this, I think Clown of the Week goes from almost me to Lucky the Leprechaun. (laughs) Um, okay, Kyrie wasn't mean enough to Lucky. A black eye is the least he could have given him. Um, no, but seriously, look. First of all, I just think it's it's very Celtics. I'll say that. You know, like I, I've joked over the years about how the way that the, the franchise kind of carries themselves because of the history isn't really in line with the, the franchise's overall performance um, in the last 35 years, like, yes, they've still been a, a, a successful franchise. that's competitive mostly every year. They've won a championship in that 35 year span, but they've won a championship in that 35 year span. Okay. Like the Celtics of the last 35 years are not the Celtics of these 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And there is like an arrogance about the way they carry themselves. And I think this kind of like falls within that scope because, Even if you read a lot of the reports from yesterday about how you know Stevens taking over the front office has actually been in the works for a while, and it's just a matter of basically waiting for H to step down, I'm like, I'm sorry. Look, Brad Stevens obviously is a great coach. The guy, you know, he's a basketball savant. I get that, but this notion that like you know, he was just going to be like the heir apparent. And at some point they were just going to promote him. And without really doing an exhaustive search, like I, I can't remember whose report it was, maybe Chris Mannix who wrote that, like they were going to do a search and, and but Brad Stevens was going to be part of the search for his next boss. And then um, Wick Grausbeck, that's one of the Celtics owners mentions to him, well, I think you should throw your name in the hat too. <laughs> and then it kind of snowballs from there. And it's just like, I'm sorry, but Brad Stevens, you know, by all accounts, the reason he's getting out of coaching is because he was kind of drained after the bubble and and maybe like tired and whatever, but and now he's gonna run the entire basketball operation side. I get that maybe like when they say he was tired and drained, it was specifically of coaching and not necessarily like a basketball in the grind and being around an NBA team in general. But you know, like by the sounds of it, if he was that drained and stuff, like maybe he should have taken a year off and then assessed his options and not been given the top basketball front office decision maker job, because uh there's a lot of time that goes into that. So I just think that like the way they've kind of gone about it personally reeks of Celtics arrogance. I don't know if it's going to fail or not, but I know it, it It just doesn't. It seems to be like the kind of thing that hap- like precludes a franchise, not going into the dumps, but like falling off a little bit. And, you know, the Ainge stuff like... I'm not the biggest Danny age fan ever have been. I've never understood people that like worship at the altar of age in Boston. I think his tenure there is wildly overrated.
0: That's but, interesting. okay. I think we should talk about that, but finish your thought and we can circle back
1: just again, like full credit he's won a championship fine, and and the team
0: has been competitive like the Nets trade obviously. Man turned like thirty-eight-year-old Kevin Garnett and thirty-six-year-old Paul Pierce into two franchise yes. cornerstones in Jason Tatum and, and Jalen Brown. I do,
1: I do give him credit for that, one hundred percent. But I also think that was more about Billy King and also Mikhail Prokhorov's Nets at the time and what, how desperate they. Like full credit to Ainge for taking advantage of that desperation. But even, even all the, like every year we almost did this, we almost did that, we could have done this. Like a lot of excuse making there some of the comments that have recently come to light where he talked about not caring about what players think of anything outside of basketball and in the real world, just like for a lot of reasons, I was never the biggest Danny Ainge fan. I I tweeted yesterday. My favorite Danny Ainge moment was when Pat Riley told him to shut the F up about a decade ago through the media. But yeah, I just, I just think it's a, it's a really weird time for the Celtics because look, they've got Jason Tatum who to me unquestionably is going to be the type of player you can build a championship. Like, is going to be the type of player that could be the best player on a championship team pretty much ASAP. And Jalen Brown's, you know, a fine young player to have too. They, they, like, they're a good team with a good future outlook, but it seems like they're in shambles right now. Uh, but yeah, those are my thoughts. I like, I, I don't think they're going to go into the dumps, but I think it's just very strange for a team with an outlook that they still have to be kind of as shambolic as they are right now and i think the fact that brad stevens just gets the job he got reeks of celtics arrogance that's what i'll say and maybe i was a little hard on danny ainge by saying he was wildly overrated but <laughs> yeah I, I don't think he's the executive people make him out to be
0: well look okay i mean first of all I, it's always hard to know especially like you and me we're not insiders right. we don't have the scoops the intel but like You know, going off of what's been reported, yeah, there have maybe been some trades that he's passed up or has maybe just held out on offers because he just wouldn't pull the trigger unless he could overwhelmingly win the deal. Almost like, you know, being a prisoner of his own success in past trades where he overwhelmingly won the deals. But like, he's also taken big swings like that. Obviously, the Kyrie thing didn't work out, but that's a home run trade that you make 10 times out of 10. And... The Kemba Walker thing obviously hasn't worked out, but nobody was saying at the time that that was a terrible move. It's like Kemba's knees fell apart. It's not really Danny Ainge's fault. And the Gordon Hayward signing was something that everybody was singing his praises for until Gordon Hayward destroyed his leg five minutes into his Celtics tenure. Uh, The Al Horford signing worked out really well for them. Like They have made pretty monumental moves that have served that organization very well and like you mentioned he delivered a championship with a couple of huge swings to get kevin garnett and ray allen i believe on the same night right it was on draft night in 2007 they they got ray allen
1: on draft night and then a few days later i believe the kg would happen because kg at the time didn't want to go to boston because i don't think he thought they were contender he still wasn't sure about like leaving minnesota the Celtics coming off a terrible, like 27 win season. And they had trading for Ray Allen is what convinced KG to go there. But I think it was a bit later. Right.
0: Anyway, he, he delivers a championship with that nucleus and not only a championship, but like they went back to the finals two years later. Like they were a legitimate contender for a solid four or five years and then rebuilds incredibly quickly with the help obviously of that bounty of picks that he got from the Nets. And it's easy to say like, okay, well, that's just more about the Nets and their desperation. And like any GM could have made that trade. Well, Danny Ainge is the only GM who actually did make that trade. And like, you can't just poo-poo it and say that he doesn't deserve credit for that absolute fleecing. Like one of the most lopsided trades in NBA history. I I, look, I'm with you as far as not really vibing with Danny Ainge on a personal level. Like I'm not down with his politics, him saying, you know, that he's never heard of anybody yeah. saying anything racist to a player in all his time in Boston is one of the stupidest fucking things I've ever heard.
1: Yeah. It was, it was either a flat out lie or it was willful ignorance and either way, either it's way is bad.
0: So yeah, I'm like, I I'm behind all that. Like, and I, as far as clowning Danny Ainge for, you know, the way that he carries himself is fine with me, but to say that he has had a wildly overrated tenure in Boston. Yeah. I know they've only won one championship, but like his moves, at least at the time that they were made have all been completely defensible. I don't know. I think, I think Ainge had a pretty damn good tenure there. And I think that that leaves Brad Stevens with some big shoes to fill and he doesn't have any front office experience. He obviously knows the game, but you know, and then it's a question, I guess, of whether the relationship that he has with the players currently on the roster will impact his decision-making at all when it comes time to maybe do some uh, reshuffling of the deck.
1: Yeah, I don't like the fact Jason Kidd's name is being uh, bandied about as a potential Stevens coaching replacement.
0: Right. I mean, like, yeah, his, his kind of, like, first and most pressing order of business is finding a replacement for himself. And yeah. if that replacement is Jason Kidd, well, then, yeah, we're we're going to be off to a rocky start. The Brad Stevens front office era. Um, Okay, that's enough on the Celtics. We are down to four teams in the East. And one of those teams is the Atlanta Hawks, who I predicted to lose like an idiot to the Knicks in the first round. And this is why I never make picks with my gut. We'll never do it again because when we were doing our preview episode, I was like talking through all the basketball reasons that the rational part of my brain was telling me the Hawks would win. They had way more shot creation. I didn't trust the Knicks three-point shooting to sustain itself. And I expected their three-point defense to regress. uh, And I didn't feel like they actually had a way to mismatch hunt against Trey Young. All of that came to bear and uh, the Hawks won in convincing fashion uh, and I will say the one thing I was obviously very wrong about is how Trey Young would fare in his first postseason because he was spectacular and the Knicks had no answer for him at any point. I also, look I say this as somebody who has never been like a huge Trey Young guy, not because like I don't think he is really good, just kind of on an aesthetic level and like a general vibes level, I haven't been the hugest fan the way that he has been soaking up the trash talk and the hate and dishing it right back to that MSG crowd has really made a fan out of me. I think it's been absolutely awesome. And for him to be doing what he has done on, you know, in his first foray onto the big stage, you know, basically the biggest stage in basketball, doing it at the Mecca, very cool. And huge shouts to him for just dismantling that overachieving Knicks team.
1: He talked the talk, and my God, that he walked the walk from the beginning of the series. Twenty-two year old kid with the mecca chanting "F Trey Young," making fun of his frigging hairline, which I was like so out of pocket. And for him to to do what he did on the court, end of game two, straight up say like, "All right, like we're going back to the A, like see what happens in the A," and then for his Hawks to win both games in the A and and take this back to New York with a chance to close it out. And then his performance in the closeout game and that bow at the end. How perfect was that? He literally bowed to the crowd and then said after, Well, like I'm in New York, you know, there's like Broadway and the shows like that. At the end of at the end of the show, you bow and it was the end of the show. I, I mean, you know, I like this Hawks team a lot. And and Trey has grown on me over the last couple of years, but especially in this series. Yeah, like I'm a full fledged Trey believer now. I mean, his game has its warts for sure, but I think he's the real deal, man. And I think um I think there is, especially in the NBA, there is something to having like an it factor. And I think if if you didn't realize he had it before this series, I think you have to acknowledge that he has it now. You know, whether you believe in an it factor or not, he's got it.
0: Yeah, that's what we call stage presence. You know, especially, especially that bow at the end yeah. after that dagger three. I also want to say, Clint Capella, Dude. this is going to sound insane because... As we just mentioned, Trey was unreal in this series, and he's obviously the head of the snake. Like, he's the one who's doing basically all the legwork to pick apart that Knicks defense. I think Clint Capella might have been the best player in this series, man. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a player look so totally inescapable on defense. You don't have to like Yep. Obviously that has a lot to do with the Knicks' lack of spacing, but it seemed like literally every possession they just could not get away from him like a guard would turn the corner he'd be there randall would try to drive baseline he would be there like he was omnipresent at the defensive end just snuffing out everything at the rim and you know i think it was a great call to not make him randall's primary and that was again something we talked about in the preview where his kind of second layer of help on Randall's drives was just invaluable, and he he played probably the biggest part in turning Randall into an absolute pumpkin in this series. Yeah, I mean, look, Capella was you know a few a few weeks ago he
1: was my remember under the radar defensive player of the year pick. I I think he's had like the greatest defensive glow up I've ever seen a player have this year. like. He wasn't ever like a bad defensive player, but I think he was really overrated defensively. Mm-hmm. And the season he had defensively this year and his defensive work in this series was just stupid good. And um, something I'm saying, like Clint Capella is on the court, and especially when DeAndre Hunter's healthy, it's just time to accept that the Hawks can play defense. Like this is a good defensive team with Clint Capella on the court and DeAndre Hunter healthy. And the fact that they have proven they can build they can build a good, not just competent defense with Trey Young on the court is like an absolutely massive development going forward for them. And Clint Capella has been the biggest reason why.
0: I also want to shout out Nate McMillan because he had a great series, really coached his ass off. I thought like that defensive scheme, I think it was uh, Mike Prada who was writing about how it was really like hitting Tibbs with a dose of his own medicine, like the Tibbs style defense overloading the strong side of the floor. And it's just funny thinking back to like when the Pacers fired him last year, they sent out that press release and went out of their way to include his playoff record with the Pacers. And, you know, I have always said that I, I felt like McMillan was more a victim of circumstance than anything in those playoff sweeps, like just untimely injuries to the wrong guys and and the wrong matchups. But like this, this, this has got to feel really vindicating for him. And I wonder if the Pacers will do the same thing when they fire Nate Bjorkren. Just have his zero one play in record in the press release, and just mention the fact that he surrendered nine million points in the paint in the only pseudo postseason game he ever coached. <laughs> like, I fraud I,
1: alert with Nate Bjorkren.
0: Um, anyway, it's been really nice to see him benefit from circumstance in Atlanta. You know, because he got to take over <laughs> from Lloyd Pierce just when. Bogdan Bogdanovich was coming back you know near around the time that DeAndre Hunter was coming back and like that team was getting healthy and rounding into form and I'm not by any means saying that he didn't have anything to do with them turning their season around and the success they've had since then but uh it was just nice after you know the years of shit luck that he had going into the playoffs he finally you know got to catch a few breaks and and showed that he is a very very capable coach in that first round series um do you think the Knicks are going to be back here next year or do you have the same feeling that I have where it's like they might be in for some real regression unless they make a big splash in free agency, which they have a lot of cap space and, and they're definitely capable of doing?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's the key. If they If they make a big positive splash in free agency and they come back next year with Randall and I know he's getting dumped on right now, he had an awful series, but... I, I just don't think you can argue with the season Randall had. Like I, I'm not at all arguing this guy should be the best player in a contender. He, you know, probably best to be the second or third best player if he's what he was this season, but that's a big step for him. And if like, if, if Barrett continues to develop the way he d- did this year and Randall's just what he was or something even close to what he was this year and they make a big free agent splash, this is a team that can absolutely threaten to like make a deep run next year and go forward and like build something here. But it's still James Dolan's Knicks. Like they're, there is nothing stopping this team from making the wrong free agent splash, you know, and all of a sudden having like a really underwhelming big three of... DeRozan. Right? (laughs) Exactly. And Randall and Barrett. And now all of a sudden, it's like you've put like a 42-win ceiling on you and they're just this every year. So I'm not as convinced as I once was that they're going to completely fall apart after this and like, you know, they're going to go back to being like a 55-60 Like, I think they'll be competitive next year regardless, but to me... I see a clearer path towards like 38 to 42 wins and another easy first round exit than I do to like a step up.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I, I shouldn't have even been clowning. Cause I actually think DeRozan can help them in a lot of ways. Yeah. The fit would be tenuous in certain ways, but like, again, shot creation is what they need. And DeMar has become a fantastic shot creator. I also think like Kyle Lowry would be an amazing fit there. And that's a guy who would fit like the culture of that team perfectly and would give them more or less exactly what they need on offense. But I don't know if they want to go with a guy that old, you know, maybe they want to look for somebody who who fits the timeline of the team a little bit better, but if they wanted to give themselves like a, a two year window of being, you know, of a super competent playoff team that could definitely like punch through the second round. I feel like Lowry would be a great guy for them to add. Um, but The Hawks are moving on and they're going to play the Sixers. And unfortunately, we got to talk about injuries again. Joel Embiid has, what do they say, a partially torn or a slight tear in his meniscus. meniscus. And the Sixers are treating this as a day to day thing, which, okay, I guess. (sighs) It's not great.
1: Yeah, the Hawks are winning this series.
0: I mean, it's just like, it's impossible to say, like we were talking off air and I was like, okay, if you could tell me right now that Embiid is going to play the whole series, but he's going to be at like 60% or he's going to play in like three games and maybe be at like 75%, then yeah, I'd pick the Hawks to win the series. If somehow he can go and play the whole series at like something like 80%, then I still think the Sixers are winning, but... The Hawks are good. And, you know, first things first, this is just such a bummer for Embiid. Yeah. he man. He's just, like, never been able to be healthy, really, for the playoffs. Aside from last year when Ben Simmons wasn't healthy and, like, they just didn't have a chance. Apart from that, it's like he, he just hasn't been healthy at the right time. And, like, he has this incredible MVP caliber season where it, it really feels like he's putting everything together. And the Sixers have positioned themselves perfectly to make a run where they have this clear path to the conference finals and are potentially going to get an opponent that's been beaten up upon in potentially a much more competitive conference semifinal. Like, the stars were aligned for them to finally do this thing. And man, does this take the wind out of their sails and and beef sails. Like, I I just, I, I don't see how he is going to come back, play through a torn meniscus. And be nearly as effective as the Sixers need him to be. Like maybe he can come back and be effective enough for them to scrape past the Hawks, but that's about all they can expect. I think. I don't know, man. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. I just, like, I, I honestly don't have much to add. To that. Like, it's an absolute bummer. Embiid deserves a lot better. Sucks for the Sixers who had finally put it together. Like you said, they had this clear path to the conference finals. It, it sucks. You know, uh, the game's not fair unfortunately. Um, you know, as we were just talking about in discussion of Nate McMillan um, and his history, right? Like it, it's, it's not fair. And unfortunately, some teams and some players just end, tend to be on the wrong side of that equation more often than not. And it feels like Embiid and a little bit the Sixers too uh, have been on the wrong side of that equation more often than not. And it seems like the Hawks are going to be the beneficiaries of it. And, you know, no guarantees, obviously, like the Sixers are still capable of playing a great series. And we'll see you you know, Ben Simmons without Embiid for an entire series or maybe for an entire series. But yeah, I just think given the assumption that there's no way Embiid can be close to 100% playing through a goddamn torn meniscus and given how much I believe in the Hawks as not just an opportunistic team, but an actually like good team, I I, I just think they're the better team now in this series. And I think Trey Young if it keeps going like this, should be the best player in this series. No, just, like, And that's not even me throwing a usual jab that I do to Ben Simmons. Like I, I just genuinely think Trey Young will be the best player in this series without Embiid. And if, if Atlanta's got the best player and the better team, it's just not
0: looking good for Philly. I got to say though, so like all the stuff that I said about Trey going into that series against the Knicks that didn't come to fruition at all, I'm going to be really interested to see what he can do against the Sixers defense. Because There's all that length, man, like, you know, they can throw Thighball on him. They can throw Ben Simmons on him. And I think really make it difficult for him to get to his spots and get comfortable, you know, with the kind of space the Knicks were giving him in the middle of the floor. And not being there, maybe to meet him in the middle of the floor changes the equation. And then also, like, if Embiid's playing, but he's hampered, then maybe Embiid's not the guy that you want to be guarding pick and roll against Trey Young. But I think as far as the perimeter guys who the, the Sixers can make the primary on Trey, they have a, a the ability to make life really difficult on him. And so I'm very curious to see how he responds to that. But in, in some ways, I think the Sixers might have a similar challenge, not to the same extent because they do have more individual shot creation, I think. But, it's it's, but not a, enough. it's it's a little similar in terms of like them not necessarily being able to like exploit Trey at the defensive end. You know what I mean? Yep. Like who's, I think it's Tobias Harris is the guy you probably expect to take advantage of that mismatch or maybe like Ben Simmons running inverted pick and rolls. Like I think it's got to be that. And Simmons can do that. Like aggressive Simmons, like when he's turning the corner and turning on the burners to get to the rim, like he can exploit that. But it's that's very much going to be incumbent on him and Tobias Harris. They need to step up and they need to hunt Trey young. I think ruthlessly.
1: Yeah. And I think, look, this is, you know, if like from Trey young's perspective, I'll say if he succeeds in this matchup, given all the Sixers length at that point, it's just like the guy's the truth. Like there should be no more doubts about it. But from the Sixers perspective, obviously you want Joel Embiid there, but this is going to be to me a good um, like test and indicator of, how much growth there's been, you know, in some of these players and topics that we've talked about ad nauseum with this team, you know, whether it's Tobias Harris in the playoffs, like doing what he needs to do aggressively, like taking advantage of mismatches, um, being that kind of secondary or tertiary score that the Sixers need, like Ben Simmons taking advantage of certain opportunities. Like this is this is now the ultimate test, if, especially if Embiid's not there or he's just not healthy, like. Tobias Harris, like, can you summon what you had in the regular season, but in a more increased role now and get the job done? Like Ben Simmons, can you for four to seven games, can you focus on both sides of the ball and just like have a great series consistently without any questions, you know? And again, maybe, maybe it's unfair because it's almost like I'm asking perfection from them, but it's like, Hey man, like if ever there was a time for these two guys, especially to rid themselves of some playoff demons and prove themselves on this stage like now is the time this series is the time
0: and i think we could see the hawks sort of adopt a similar defensive philosophy when it comes to defending simmons that they did when it you know when it came to defending randall you know what like shading him toward the baseline and and having capella there basically ready to help using potentially DeAndre Hunter as his primary to sort of slow him down a bit at the point of attack and and giving Capella a chance to come in and provide that layer of help. I think especially if Embiid's not playing and if it's like Capella, you know, quote unquote guarding Dwight Howard and that's just giving him license to rove and muck everything up everywhere on the floor, then that could make things really difficult for Simmons. Like those driving lanes aren't necessarily going to be there. And, then to me, what it comes down to is like, okay, you're running the inverted pick and rolls. You're trying to pull Trey Young into those actions. The Hawks are going to have him hedge and recover because they don't want to give up the switch. Can you take advantage of those pockets of space where he's recovering and you have an opportunity either to turn the corner or to get the ball out of your hands and get it moving and swing it around for an open shot? That That's what the Sixers offense is going to have to do. And Ben Simmons is going to have to be the guy who drives it because Tobias Harris has become a really good self-creator. He can create shots for himself, but he's not creating shots for the other guys on that team. And that's going to fall on Simmons. So we'll see. We'll see what he's made of. We'll see what Trey Young's made of. In spite of how much of a bummer it is that Embiid is injured, I'm still looking forward to this series. But not as much as I'm looking forward to Bucks nets which a lot of people are calling basically the NBA Finals. Are you willing to go that far? Do you think this is for all the marvels here? No, I think it's the Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think we I, – I, yeah, I just think that's that would be shortchanging a lot of really, really good teams in the West to e- say that.
1: Exactly. And like – okay, yeah, the Lakers are obviously on the ropes right now. Like they're not eliminated yet. The Clippers, you know, I, I'm obviously not the biggest Clippers believer, but they're not eliminated yet. They still have Kawhi Leonard on there and a, a really good team. Um and the, the Suns, Suns and the I Jazz, think, man. Like, yeah. The Suns and the Jazz are both in my mind. Like, especially if both LA teams are out, like are both capable now of making a run. Like, yeah, calling this the NBA finals is a real disservice to the quality in the West, but it is the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, I, I don't think
0: anything can upend that. I yeah, I will say I feel like we might have to just stop sleeping on the Jazz. <laughs> like we I feel like we barely talked about them as a legitimate contender, but they really do look like one to me. And also they stand to be the biggest winners. If the Mavs actually finish the Clippers off. Cause I've been saying all absolutely. season, I think the Clippers are the worst possible matchup for Utah, but I think they can beat anybody else. And if the Clippers are knocked out, they, yeah, the jazz can absolutely win the West. And it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that they would be able to beat whoever comes out of this bucks nets matchup. But as for that matchup, I think, you know, the first and biggest question that I have is like, how do these teams guard each other? The Bucs are actually a really good defensive team. They just so happen to be going up against what is probably the greatest offense of all time. The Nets are not a very good defensive team, and their particular weakness in my eyes is the one that aligns with the Bucks' greatest strength. And that's, you know, the Nets interior defense versus the interior scoring of Giannis Antetokounmpo. And that pressure point is what gives the Bucks a really good chance of winning this series. Whether it will be enough is another matter, but they don't have an answer for Giannis. You know, their best answer for Giannis, as we talked about after their two-game miniseries back in May, is just the biggest player on the floor... Maybe they dust off DeAndre Jordan, who they basically haven't played since that two-game mini series, or whether they roll with Blake Griffin, who, you know, I, I think did a actually pretty decent job in that two-game set, but I don't think it's going to hold up in that matchup over a seven-game series. And a big issue for them right now is Jeff Green is out with this plantar fascia strain. We don't know when he's going to be back or in what condition he's going to be back. That's a big loss to me for them. I don't know how they defend Giannis, and... No, look, they are gonna have issues elsewhere too, right? Like they gotta figure out who's guarding Drew Holiday. are they gonna like I think Harden's probably the guy that makes most sense to guard Drew just because of his strength. But I don't know. How do you, how do you see the like the individual matchup shaking out and just like how those teams go about trying to stop each other?
1: Well, I think the the fascinating thing for me is the Giannis thing. And I we were talking off air. I think they end up with Blake on him. Or yeah, maybe they do dust off DeAndre. But I think like that's really The only bet here, right, is they put, whether it's the biggest or the strongest guy, because Blake is freakishly strong, on Giannis and just hope to impede him on his way to the rim like, and not have to bring help often, right, and and avoid him then being able to pick them apart with the passing and Milwaukee's three-point shooting. If Blake Griffin and or DeAndre Jordan and or insert whatever other name can can do that and just impede him going to the rim, then I think the Nets defense will actually hold up surprisingly well. If they can't, then yeah, Giannis will get whatever he wants inside. But other uh, in terms of the other matchups, like, yeah, I guess Harden, Drew, Kyrie Middleton, I guess. I think KD Middleton. So then they hide Kyrie where?
0: Uh, I mean, whoever the... Buck's fifth starter is I don't think we know who that's going to be like is it going to be Bryn Forbes is it going to be Pat Connaughton is it going to be PJ Tucker like any one of those guys I could see them hiding Kyrie on I think
1: right yeah I mean yeah that makes sense um it's funny because like when you look when you really break it down matchup wise and you talk about you know the one biggest advantage in the series which is Milwaukee inside like things do point to Milwaukee actually having the advantage in this series, right? Both on like an individual matchups perspective and when you look at the biggest advantage in the series. And yet it's the Nets with Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving. And so I can like acknowledge that the Bucks have certain advantages and maybe the biggest advantage in the series and still pick Brooklyn because it's like at the end of the day, I think that talent will win out. And I think in a playoff setting is another thing we were were talking about off air, like, look, I would take Drew Holiday over Kyrie Irving over the span of an entire season. I think he's had a better season. He's obviously a far better defender. But in a postseason setting, when that level of talent does usually win out, I'd put Kyrie ahead of Drew. And so like for me, looking at the six best players in this series, like I think the Nets have the best player. You know, the Bucs have the second in Giannis. But I think even Harden, like Harden isn't, as far behind Giannis to me as Giannis is behind KD in a postseason setting.
0: Oh, and I mean, then, it, look, I, I don't think it would be out of pocket to say that Harden is the Nets' best player. Well, then I, there you go. And if
1: and if we both acknowledge that KD's better than than Giannis at their best, like and, and I don't necessarily
0: saying- acknowledge that though. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm there. I, I honestly I have such a hard time distinguishing between the three of them that I would almost just say, okay, like these are the three best players in the series you know, the, you're splitting hairs when you're trying to, to separate them yeah. or or place them in a pecking order. And it's kind of just like an eye of the beholder thing. It's like, what do you value? Because if it's off the dribble shot creation, obviously you're going to lean toward Harden and KD. If it's ability to score at the rim and obviously defensive aptitude and versatility, then you're going to lean toward Giannis. But it's more like a matter of taste, I think.
1: I think what I'd say is that the Nets have three of the four best players in this series.
0: I think I, I would rather holiday than Kyrie. Like, and, and I like Kyrie is incredible and I get what you're saying about like how his skills kind of play up in a post-season setting, but like, especially for a Nets team that doesn't necessarily need his shot creation the way that some other teams might like, don't you think that the Nets would rather have drew holiday like if they if Holiday and Irving swapped places, I think I would pick the Nets in this series without a second thought.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's not a bad way to look at it.
0: That That's kind of where I'm right. at. I just think the chasm between them at the defensive end of the floor and, and, you know, taking for granted that I think offense is more important than defense in today's game the chasm between them at the defensive end is, is far greater than the gap between them at the offensive end, in my opinion.
1: I don't know about that, man. Kyrie at his best offensively.
0: I I just look, it's the series to me is less about the teams kind of like being able to counter each other's advantages than it is about, okay, which of these teams advantages is going to be more drastic. And I don't know. Like, I think if you, you know, gun to my head I'd pick Nets and 7. Just maybe giving the edge to the home court team and also giving the edge to the team with more shot creation. But but I think it's going to be super tight and you know, when we talked about that mini series I mentioned how they did manage to force Giannis into 19 pull-up jumpers a game. I don't think I don't think the Bucks can afford for that to be the case again. Like if they're playing him one on one and giving him that gap, I think he's got to like attack that space and try to get to that jump hook and get to the basket, or pivot into the dribble handoffs, be used more as a screener. Like I, I think they need to explore those counters rather than just having him him shoot jumpers off of the dribble. Like that's not gonna work. But I also just don't think that that's necessarily like a tenable strategy over the course of a series for the Nets to actually slow him down. I do want to point out, so I have a piece coming out about uh, Brook Lopez today and his role in this series. I think it's interesting, just going back to like the individual matchups that we were talking about. So, it's like if Durant's on Middleton and maybe it's Joe Harris on Middleton, I don't know. But like if the Nets center is guarding Giannis a much smaller player is guarding Brook Lopez. And I think he proved in that Miami series, because they did the same thing, right? They put Bam on Giannis and Lopez really took advantage of that size mismatch. Like he was able to get inside. He shot like 70% from two point range in that series really helped the bucks on the offensive glass, which we know is a big weakness for the nets. I think he's got a very important role to play. And so much of it is contingent on whether he can be a factor at the defensive end or whether the nets are going to be able to turn him into a liability at the defensive end. And I'm really curious to see how the Bucks go about using him. Like, are they going to be playing him up at the level of the screen? Are they just going to be keeping him in that drop? Are they going to be doing the pre-switching thing where they're kind of allowing him to play a one-man zone under the basket? I made this point in the piece that I wrote, but like the one game that Harden played in the season series, he shot seven for nine on floaters, all of them coming against a dropping Brook Lopez. So... They they got to find some kind of way, I think to make Lopez an impactful defender here. And I'm not entirely sure how they're going to go about doing that.
1: All right, make your pick. I'm going nets and seven.
0: I'm going nets and seven as well.
1: Well, it will be fascinating to watch.
0: Super looking forward to that series. Uh, when we reconvene, we will have at least one, maybe a couple of games from that series to talk about. And the Western conference second round will be set, but we have been here for long enough <laughs> A Jumbo episode. Do you, do you have a fan shout-out for us this week, Cash?
1: I do. Uh, so before I get to the the real fan shout-out for this week, I did want to mention uh, Ruben Morales-Forte, who was one of our fan shout-outs last week, actually ended up confirming with me. He's been a fan since November 2018, uh, which is actually only like six months into our show's existence. Um, and that he's been listening from New Orleans and Guatemala. So always amazing when uh, we get some international flavor. And then the, this week's new shout-out, is Troy Stewart in Toronto, um, who when I tweeted last week saying that uh, if the Clippers and Heat had both been swept, I believe Pat Riley would have offered Uncle Dennis the Versace mansion to get Kawhi to Miami. Troy replied saying uh, he thinks I'm right about that, but also that he's a super big fan of Pound the Rock from day one when there was three of us. So that's a shout out for Will Lou uh, that he listens to every episode, enjoys the breakdowns from myself and Wolf on, and he tells us to keep going, and honorary mention for our clown of the week mentions so uh troy is definitely a super fan with the references there so thank you troy thank you again ruben and yeah for all of our pound the rock listeners as usual hit us up on social media let us know how long you've been a fan where you're listening from and we will get you a shout out on a future episode also shout out uh, david brooke who we have shouted out before i'm leaving houston but it, it even comments uh, again on the score instagram that he's looking forward to episodes of pound the rock so i still see that david
0: for anyone who looks forward to episodes of pound the rock boy <laughs> have we got a treat for you today nearly a hundred minutes of unfiltered basketball talk i think we can put a bow on it there uh for joseph Cacharo, i'm joe wolf on talk to y'all soon pound the rock